a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible Study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? (laughs) Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information, go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get, make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of his will for your life. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We're in Romans chapter six. You know, we Baptists get accused of a lot of things, some of them true, unfortunately. But if I were to choose one thing that we've been accused of maybe more than any other thing, and I'm talking about down through the years, the decades, it would probably be the belief that we can be saved without really repenting of our sins. Baptists get accused of that a lot. When we teach or preach the biblical doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone, of course, that's a true biblical doctrine. It's very clear in Scripture. But when we teach that or when we teach and preach that salvation has nothing to do with our good works, 
there'll be those who accuse us of teaching that, well, you're, you just, you guys believe that sin's no big deal. You can just sin all you want to. And you got to reinterpret that. Of course, if you really are a Christian, you don't want to sin. That would be the point. But, but, you know, you can just go out and live for the devil, they would say. And then you don't think it's a big deal because of your once saved, always saved belief and your salvation by grace through faith belief. And of course, a thing that complicates this is there really are people out there who may call themselves Baptists in many cases, who really have convinced themselves that they can be, quote, saved and just continue living in sin. And that that sin's really not that big a deal. Now, that kind of thinking and that kind of teaching has a name. It's called antinomianism. Antinomianism. The word antinomianism comes from two Greek words. Anti, which you're very familiar with, which means against or opposed to. And nomos, which is the Greek word, which means the law. So it means against the law, teaching against the law. The thinking of antinomians goes something like this. The Bible teaches that we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. That means the law has no authority over us. And that means we're not bound to keep the law. And if they heard someone say that Christians should keep God's law, they would accuse that person of legalism. Any of you ever heard of Ann Hutchison? Do you remember that name at all from history? She's a fascinating lady. Very fascinating story, sad story. I'll tell you just a little of it here. She was born in 1591 in England. She was the daughter of an Anglican preacher. And her daddy uh, wanted his daughter to be well-educated. So she got a far better education than most women of that day because her daddy taught her. Well, when she was 21 years old, she married William Hutchison. That was 1613. And Anne and her husband, William, began to follow a preacher named John Cotton. He was a very powerful Puritan preacher. A lot of people liked to hear him preach. And as a Puritan, he didn't believe in separating from the Church of England. You remember the pilgrims did. They were separatists, but the Puritans did not. They just wanted to reform the Church of England. So he stayed there, tried to stay there in England, and tried to preach reform. Of course, that wasn't received very well. The Church of England did not appreciate the Puritan efforts. So he was eventually forced to leave, as many other Puritan leaders, preachers, were forced to leave. And in that day, they usually fled to America. Sometimes they came over in great numbers. Thousands of them would come, to, especially to the Boston area. So in 1633, he came over. The following year, the Hutchinsons followed him to America, 1634, with 11 of their children. In all, Ann Hutchinson wound up giving birth to 15 children. One of them died in infancy. Two of them died of illness as young children. But because of the influence of her dad, she was very well educated at a time when not many women were well educated at all. So in her church, other women recognized her education, her thinking ability. She was a sharp lady and they looked up to her and she enjoyed being kind of a leader for them. And she began some Bible studies for women so they could study the sermons of John Cotton. They would listen to his sermons and then talk about them, study them. Well, eventually men started attending too. And that was just fine with Ann. <laughs> she was happy with the men to be there. And eventually, even the governor of Massachusetts, he was a young man named Henry Vane at the time, he began attending her meetings too. So she's getting pretty popular. 
But eventually, Anne began to accuse all the other Puritan ministers of preaching legalism because they were preaching, as we do, (laughs) and as the Bible clearly teaches, by the way, that obedience and good works are an evidence, that's a key word there, they're an evidence, they're an outcome of true salvation. Obedience and good works do not earn salvation. No, that would be salvation by works. But they are an evidence of salvation. When we do receive Christ by faith, uh, we, we begin to live for him. He begins to live his life out on, in us. But she believed it was legalism to even teach that obedience was an evidence of salvation. She said, that's still legalism. She said, we're not under the law in any way. So the law has no bearing on us. And she just began to teach that one's outward behavior had nothing to do with the state of your soul or the state of your standing with God. She also, by the way, began to believe that she was receiving direct revelation from God that was just as valid as Scripture. Dangerous stuff. Well, in October 1636, the Puritan church leaders there in the Boston area began private meetings with her and others who were following her and teaching the same thing she was, trying to correct her. And they continued that discussion through the following year. In May of 1637, John Winthrop, you may have heard of him, very strong Orthodox Puritan leader, he defeated Henry Vane to become the new governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony. Vane decided to go back to England. But she refused to change her teachings in spite of all instructions she'd been getting from these men of God. So in March 1638, she was brought to a trial by the Puritan church leaders for teaching heresy. And eventually, she would not change her mind. She was very stubborn about her position. She was found guilty, and she was banished from the colony. And so she and her family traveled to Rhode Island, where Roger Williams had established a place where people could believe just about anything. They really believed in ultimate freedom of religion there. So she thought, this is where we need to go. It was not an easy trip. They had to go uh, travel six days by foot, and it was wintertime. We had to go through the snow. But they got there. But in 1641, her husband died. And in 1642, the next year, she, she became afraid that the Massachusetts Bay Colony would extend its influence to Rhode Island as well. So she took seven of her children and a son-in-law and several servants, and they moved to New Netherlands, which later became the city of New York where the Dutch were settling. But her timing could not have been worse. There was conflict going on between the Illinois Indians and the Dutch settlers in New Netherlands, and it was getting more and more serious. It was increasing. Well, in August of 1643, the Illinois Indians came into her settlement, and they killed Anne Hutchinson and killed six of her children who were still living with her. Only a nine-year-old daughter escaped alive. Anne was 52 when she died. But her descendants became quite famous. Many of them did. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a descendant of Anne Hutchinson. So was George H.W. Bush. And, of course, George W. Bush. All descendants of Anne Hutchinson. So were George and Mitt Romney. The actor, Ted Danson. She had a lot of famous descendants. (laughs) And today, as you might imagine, given the role she played, she's considered a historical hero of the women's liberation movement. She was an incredible woman in many, many ways. A fascinating story. Unfortunately, she was an antinomian. She didn't believe you Christians have to obey God. She believed her personal revelations from God were just as valid or more valid than Scripture. And of course, on top of that, 
She violated the biblical command that women should not teach or assume authority over men. <laughs> but she was an amazing woman. Unfortunately, she was a heretic. Fascinating story. Antinomianism. Heresy. Now, we're not antinomians, of course, but we often get accused of it. And the passage of Scripture we're studying right now helps us understand why that's true. So today I want us to focus on these first two verses of Romans chapter 6. Let's just read them again. Remember, this is God's Word we're reading. Actually, let's back up to chapter 5, verse 20 to get just a little of the context. Chapter 5, verse 20. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul begins this chapter with a question. What shall we say then? What shall we say then? What, 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 what do you mean, Paul? What shall we say about what, Paul? What shall we say about what he's just said in chapter 5? Of course, it's important to remember when Paul wrote Romans, he didn't divide it up into chapters and verses for us. The Bible was divided into chapters and verses by a man named Robert Estienne, a French printer in the 16th century. The first English Bible to divide it into chapters and verses was the very famous Geneva Bible, 1560. The Geneva Bible was the very first complete English Bible to be translated entirely from the original Greek and Hebrew languages. There were earlier English versions that were translated largely from the Latin Vulgate, or, or they were not complete. But the Geneva Bible was the most popular English translation of the Bible during the 16th and 17th centuries. The Geneva Bible was the Bible that William Shakespeare used. It was also the Bible that the pilgrims used. They brought to America on the, on the Mayflower. Of course, as you know, the Geneva Bible was eventually replaced by the King James Version of the Bible. But are you aware that Christians of that day, when the King James Version first came out, they they were really suspicious of the King James Version. They didn't trust the King James Bible, partly because King James was a wicked man personally, and they just didn't believe he'd give an accurate translation of the Scripture because of his character. And partly they were suspicious because they knew the Roman Catholic Church had influenced the King James Version, and the King James Version translators admitted they had consulted with the Roman Catholic Version of the Dewey Reims. Of course, the King James Version eventually won out, and that was partly, by the way, because after it was translated and made available, King James simply banned the printing of the Geneva Bible. <laughs> he wanted his translation out there, not the Geneva Bible. Anyway, that's another long story. We don't need to go down that road any further. But that's why we have chapters and verses. I'm glad we do. It makes it a lot easier to find things in the Bible, doesn't it? We just need to remember it originally didn't have those. Anyway, in chapter 5, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, led us to understand the meaning of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We learned that just as we were in Adam, joined to Adam, so we are now joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Christ Jesus. And at the end of chapter 5, he added the P.S. we just read to explain the purpose of the law. So it says in verse 20, the law came in that the transgression might increase, but, listen to this, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, of course, that's a very true and very powerful and very wonderful statement, but it's a truth that can be easily twisted and easily misunderstood. And we have an enemy named Satan, and Satan delights in taking truth from God's Word and twisting it and distorting it and trying to take it out of context to create confusion and misunderstanding. So verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5 have that potential to raise some unsettling questions. First of all, won't such a radical, overwhelming statement about grace, a wonderful statement, true statement, but won't it encourage people to sin? What he says in verse 20. Isn't this the kind of teaching that could lead to antinomianism? Won't people say, well, if it's true that, that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, shouldn't I just sin a lot so that I can know more and more of God's grace? There will be people that think like that. It's foolish thinking. But Paul knew there would be, God knew there would be, so in chapter 6 he deals with it to guard against antinomianism. The second problem, the second question is a problem that caused him to add verses 20 and 21 to chapter 5. It's kind of a PS to that chapter. It has to do with the confusion regarding the purpose of the law. So when we get to chapter 7, Paul's going to deal with that problem, explaining the purpose and place of the law in more detail. And when he gets to chapter 8, he's going to again pick up this great theme he began in chapter 5. Romans chapter 8 is the favorite chapter of the whole Bible of many, many Christians. It's a wonderful chapter. We'll get there eventually, Lord willing. But here in chapter 6, God answers all those people throughout church history who've come along and said, well, yeah, we believe in salvation by grace. We believe in the security of the believer. And it is so wonderful because now it just doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we live our lives. We're on our way to heaven. Sin's not a big deal anymore. And if Satan can get people to think that way, he's won a great victory in many people's lives. He wants to take a precious, beautiful truth from God's Word and twist it and use it to encourage people to believe that their sins are no big deal. And unfortunately, there are many, many people, some of them call themselves Baptists, they go by other names too, but they cling to this very deadly, dangerous teaching. Chapter 6 can be subdivided into two sections, and each section begins with a question that's kind of similar, they sound a lot alike. Verse 1, he asks the question, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And then in verses 2 through 14, he deals with antinomianism in a very powerful doctrinal way. Then in verse 15, he asks another question, very similar. He said, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? And so in the last part of this chapter, he deals with that question in a very practical manner. So in the first part of chapter 6, he shows the error of antinomianism from a doctrinal viewpoint. In the last part, he shows the error of antinomianism from a more practical or experiential point of view. In verses 1 and 2, he raises the question, and then he gives a general answer. In verses 3 through 11, he gives a more detailed answer, and in the process, gives this wonderful, very powerful exposition of what it means for us to be one with Christ, our union with Christ. In verses 12 through 14, he makes an appeal to us based on these wonderful truths. So it's kind of an overview of the forest we're in right now in God's Word. Now, let's begin to examine the trees of that forest just a little bit more closely. First, we need to consider this. It turns out to be really, really important, so stay with me here. The very fact that such a question is even raised 
and has to be answered, the very fact that the question comes up is very significant. Think about it. If a man was out there preaching justification by works, no one would ever even think about asking a question like this. You see what I mean? If a man's preaching in order to get to heaven, you got to keep the Ten Commandments. In order to get to heaven, you got to live by the golden rule. In order to get to heaven, you have to do all these good works. You got to attend church regularly. You got to keep the law. You got to keep it up. You got to do it the rest of your life. Eventually, you'll get your way into heaven. <laughs> well, no one would ever ask a preacher like that. Well, what then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? <laughs> he would look at you like you're totally insane. Why would you ask such a question? His whole point is only if you stop sinning and only if you obey can you save yourself. You see what I mean? He's preaching salvation by works. Only the preaching of salvation by grace alone through faith alone can lead to this kind of misrepresentation. When we preach true biblical grace, there always will be some who misunderstand. There are those who misinterpret what we're saying. Sometimes they may not say the words, but by their lives they're saying, it doesn't matter how much I sin. It's no big deal. I can just sin all that I want to sin. It's no big deal. I'm still good with God. And Paul has said several things at this point in order to communicate the truth about salvation. He said several things that could be very easily twisted to support that kind of really bad, heretical, non-biblical thinking. For example, back in chapter 3, verse 20, he said, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Chapter 3, verse 28, he said, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Chapter 4, verse 5, he said, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Now, all these are precious truths, of course. But when you say things like that, even though it's true and it needs to be said, it can result in this misunderstanding. It's a kind of misunderstanding he's dealing with in chapter 6. It's one of the main reasons God gives us chapter 6. So in this sense, the doctrine of justification through faith alone, by God's grace alone, it's a dangerous teaching. <laughs> it's dangerous in the sense that it's liable to be misunderstood. But listen, this is so important. It's dangerous, but it's true. We've got to teach God's truth. If we're not exposed to that misunderstanding, it's because we're not preaching salvation by grace through faith. See what I'm saying? If we're not exposed to the misunderstanding, we're not really teaching the truth. You get what I'm saying? This is really important. You see, nobody ever accused the Roman Catholic Church of antinomianism. Why? Because they have such a strong emphasis on salvation by works. You have to do this, 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 and this. But the Roman Catholic Church certainly did accuse Martin Luther of antinomianism. They charged that he was just teaching things to excuse his own sin, his own lust. You know, he, he married Catherine von Bora, and they said, that, that's wrong. You know, they didn't believe their clergy ought to get married. You know, still don't. They forbid, forbade their clergy to marry. And so they accused Martin Luther of antinomianism. And when we teach, as Paul did and Luther did, that God justifies the ungodly, that we're saved not by our works, but in spite of them, that we're saved only by the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, there will be those who misunderstand. 
So in verse 2, Paul answers the question with a very strong exclamation. May it never be. Very strong negative in the Greek. It could be translated absolutely not. No way. Never. It's unthinkable. It's just a strong, strong negative statement, exclamation. Unfortunately, the King James translators translated it, God forbid, which is unfortunate because God's name's not there in the Greek text at all. And because some ungodly people have taken that phrase and used it as a strong negative exclamation without really treating it like a prayer or anything. They're just throwing out God's name as a strong way to emphasize a negative. But, but God's name's not there in the Greek. It's better just to leave it maybe like the New American Standard has. May it never be. Listen, guys, I know I've said it before, but God's name is holy. We need to be careful how we use God's name. When we use God's name, we need to be speaking reverently about God or talking very consciously to God, not just throwing out his name. There are way too many Christians. It breaks my heart. They're imitating the world. I'm talking about Christian leaders in some case. You Imitating the world. Using God's name as a way of expressing surprise or as a way of being emphatic or maybe even expressing frustration or expressing anger. And they just throw God's name out there. That's using God's name in vain. It's a sin. It's ugly. God's name is holy. What Paul's teaching us is this. If we misunderstand the doctrine of grace to the point that we ask a question like verse one, then we fail to understand the whole meaning and purpose of grace. What is the purpose of grace? Is it to allow us to continue in sin? Is that why God gives us grace? No, absolutely not. It's to deliver us from the power of sin and to bring us under the reign of grace. He says it in chapter 5, verse 21. So grace might reign through righteousness. That's why, that's why we have God's grace. It's not to allow us to sin, not to give us an excuse to sin. So this is his point, and it's crucial. A man who's truly justified, a man who truly understands God's grace, as opposed to some clever satanic imitation of God's grace, will never think like that, much less act like that. It's lost people who've been deceived into thinking they're actually saved, but they're not, who make statements such as, let's just sin all the more that grace may increase. Or who, if they don't say those words, they live like that, they act like that, they think like that. And so it brings us to one of the most profound and important statements in this letter to the Romans. Paul answers this question with a question. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And the verb translated died here is past tense. It's completed action. It does not mean are dying to sin. That's not what it means. It doesn't even mean we have died to sin because there's no implication of a process going on here. It's something that happened at a point in time in the past. We died and by the way, he's going to use that same tense in verses 6 and 7 and 8 and 10 and 11. We're going to look at those verses in weeks to come. These are things that have happened at a point in time in the past. And the implications of this are huge. And God willing, we'll get into more of that as we continue this study. But let's stop here for today. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for reminding us of this powerful truth. Lord, we, we don't like being thought of as antinomians. <laughs> But Lord, we know if we're going to teach your truth, we're going to be open to that accusation. So help us not to be afraid of it. Help us just to teach the truth that we're saved by grace through faith and our works have nothing to do with it. Help us to remember that and internalize that well. But Lord, help us also to realize that you have saved us so that you can get glory through us. 
And by living under the reign of grace, you produce good works through us, works that will bring you honor and glory. You enable us to obey your truth, to obey your commands, to, to follow your word in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, thank you. And may we be clear as we talk to others that grace never, ever justifies continuing in sin. Help us communicate that clearly, Lord, when we run into people who seem to be confused about it. Help us, Lord, to teach your truth, to teach it clearly, to stand firm in your word, and to never, ever waver to the right or the left. Thank you so much for this powerful chapter you've given us. Thank you for the opportunity to dig into it together. Get glory as we continue to study your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.